I just believe that most humans have a life to live and it's hard enough to deal with all the stuff in life right now. You don't need to add to your suffering during an intermittent fast. You want to build your resilience so that intermittent fast is not suffering and it's okay to use tools to get there. It's also okay to put on a warm coat when it's cold outside, right? You might want to use a cold shower in the morning, but you don't have to freeze your butt off all day long. It's not even good for you. So this is about being kind to yourself, doing a practice that's sustainable for decades that makes you live longer and feel better without putting all of your energy into doing the practice. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Welcome to the Collective Insights Podcast. I'm your host today, Dr. Dan Stickler, and today I have an amazing human being with me, and we're excited to welcome back Dave Asprey to the show. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Dave, which is probably not many of you, uh, Dave is the founder of Bulletproof and the author of New York Times bestseller, Fast This Way where he explores cutting-edge science to examine the ways novice fasters and intermittent fasting loyalists can, end, can upend their relationship with food and upgrade their fasting game beyond calorie restriction. He's also the creator of the widely popular Bulletproof Coffee and host of the health podcast, The Human Upgrade. Welcome back, Dave. Dan, I'm always happy to be on with you. Yeah, this is actually only our, the second time we've done a podcast interview together. Uh, that actually surprises me. Um, and I, I seem to never get enough time to uh, pick your brain on things for sure. But uh, today, um, we're going to focus on fasting. Now, this is an area that is passionate. Uh, it's a passion for both of us, me from my, my clinical work with it. And you've got an entire book that you researched on, on this topic. And, you know, the, the biggest thing I'd like to start off with is really just to give an overview of fasting, you know, foods to select right times, how to do it. All right. When my publisher came to me and said, hey, Dave, can you write a book on intermittent fasting? I said, yeah, I did that. It's called The Bulletproof Diet. It came out like in 2012 or something. Uh, and people have already lost a couple million pounds on it. And it's got all of that. But it was one of five things that you do if you really want to uh, have that resilience and feel really good. And I realized that most people were like I was, uh, which when I weighed 300 pounds and I was obese, I was scared to fast because I knew that I would go into starvation mode and then I would get fatter and I would be hangry and hypoglybitchy. And so, <laughs> but I told my publisher, you want a book on fasting? All right, here's your book. Don't eat. There, there there's a book. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, 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 it was, it turns out to be one of my most readable and accessible books because it's mostly psychology. Um, mm -hmm. You could put in a single blog post, everything you need to know about fasting. Number one, it's good for you for all sorts of reasons that you don't really need to understand. Okay. Uh, number two, um, you can fast anything more than 12 hours without eating has benefits for fasting. Generally longer is better until you fast too much, at which point it's bad for you. And, and that's the rest of the book. It's like, that's why it's called Fast This Way, which is, <laughs> well, how often, how frequently, what's the magic number? And the answer is, I don't know. Tell me a little bit about yourself, 
right? Because you might be a perimenopausal woman and your fasting practice is going to look very different than a 22-year-old man's, right? And you also could be the 22-year-old man who is obese like I was when I was 22, has toxic mold exposure like I did when I was 22, and adrenal dysfunction, at which point maybe a heavy fasting practice still won't work for you, and you might want to fast more like you're an obese older person. And so what you end up finding is that it's a unique practice, and it changes on a daily basis. You didn't sleep well last night? Maybe you should fast an hour less because you didn't need to add more stress to the body. Uh, but generally speaking, three days a week, more than 12 hours a day of skipping food has some clinical benefits, according to a study out of Australia. That was actually a study on women. Uh, in Fastest Way, there's a chapter specifically on all those studies of fasting in women as opposed to in men. Even though we're all people, um, there can be some big hormonal differences as well. So from an evolutionary mismatch perspective, where have we gone offline with our relationship with food and our eating patterns? There's one ad campaign that answers that question better than ever. And this comes from Big Food. And the slogan is, you can't eat just one. So what, what it turns out is, is that in the normal type of stuff that we could eat, there's very few things that make you hungry right after you eat them. In fact, food that makes you hungry after you eat it didn't work. It's not actually food. It's something else. And the food industry realized, huh, we make more, in, more money if you want to eat more. And they do this. And it's not necessarily that, you know, the, the dark emperor of food, uh, although there might be one of those, who knows. But no, he, they didn't make a decision like that. What they said is we just want to make more money, right? And it turns out, and I, I've now, let's see, Bulletproof has done more than 600 million in lifetime revenue of food that doesn't make you hungry. So I've gone up against these guys. I've met the CEOs of most of the big food companies. They're not bad people. They want to feed people. And many of them have actually asked me this question, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. Hey, um, how can we make our food healthier without increasing the cost? Because if we add half a cent to the cost of our food, so our competitors will make it for cheaper and then everyone will buy that stuff. So they're feeling trapped. They want to make healthy food, but they know that if they don't make cheap food that tastes good and makes you want to eat it often, they will actually lose market share. So that's what we're dealing with. The primary things that make you hungry are not eating enough of the right kinds of fat. Fat creates satiety signals. It also has energy in it. Now, how do, we, how do we measure energy? Calories? So if you eat low-calorie, low-fat food and you're tired all the time, you might ask yourself whether eating less energy might make you feel less energy. And the answer is maybe, but not always, right? So fasting is also eating less energy unless you do intermittent fasting the way you're supposed to, which is you eat the same amount of calories when you do eat, you just put it in a smaller window. So I would say MSG is one of the primary things the food industry uses to make us exceptionally hungry. And it's such a bad thing that in the restaurant business, now I've had a restaurant that's been open for almost eight years uh, in Santa Monica. So I, I know something about it, but I'm, you know, I'm not a, a pro. And they will sell you these spice mixes and they're 74% MSG, but not 75%. Oh. Because if it's 75% MSG, 
you have to label it. But if it's 74%, it's allowed to be called flavoring, spices, spice extractives. And there's a long list of code names for it. So you have these well-intentioned restaurant owners who don't know the science and they will say, oh no, there's no MSG in here. But strangely enough, when they add this magic spice mix, their revenues go up by 30% because people like the food more. The real reason revenues go up by 30% is that MSG causes reactive hypoglycemia. So your blood sugar crashes and your brain goes, I need a hand here. I can't get this glutamate out of my synapses. They're firing more than they should, which is why people get headaches and things like that from it. And then to respond to that, the body says I needed more hydration and I needed more sugar. So you order another drink and then you order dessert. And it's a perfect setup. So you spent more money. And not only that, as you're eating, like this food is so good. This food is so good. So this is going on in almost every packaged food, every salad dressing. Even when you go to the organic grocery stores, you go to their hot food bar, it's canola oil and spice extractives and everything. And canola oil is another thing that makes you hungry. It's omega-6 fat. It slows your metabolism. Uh, makes you tired, and usually it's damaged fats, which creates free radicals, which create inflammation, which makes you hungry. I was uh, actually reading an article this morning on mapping appetite in the brain. It was a neuroscience study they just published, and they were talking about how for most people, and this is most people because my wife was reading it, and she goes, no, I'd do that. Um, You wouldn't grab a piece of cake for breakfast, but your brain has no problem having a piece of cake after a, a meal in the afternoon or evening. And the logic centers just don't work when it comes to, uh, to making choices on foods. It, um, it always made me curious about that because we also don't have a hard time eating donuts for breakfast. Yeah. Right. But I mean, you know, it's, what's why the difference are donuts there? Okay. But cake, not okay. I think it's because of the fat content. Donuts are higher fat than cake. Cake is sugary ah. compared to most donuts and your body wants fat in the morning. I mean, it really yeah. does. And protein is also good in the morning if you're not fasting. Um, it is my belief based on a lot of science we can go into that fat does not break a fast. Um, there's one kind of fast that it might, and there's a bunch of uh, kind of religious people who say you can only have water during a fast. And the the religion is based on science. They're saying, well, the mice in the study only had water. But then you look at the history of fasting around the planet, they at least had tea. Like they they drink Mm -hmm. herbs for a very good reason. Uh, And the two big things that happen metabolically from a fast, as you well know, um, are number one, your insulin stays low, right? There's your insulin should not be going up during a fast or you've broken the fast. But the other major benefit of fasting is something called mTOR. And I know, uh, Dr. Stickler, I mean, you know what mTOR is, but I'm going to define it for our listeners, right? Uh, mTOR is a compound in the body that causes tissue growth. And you say, that's a good thing, right? Because, you know, I wanted wanted biceps. So I also wanted to not have sarcopenia, which is muscle loss and wasting that happens as you age. So I would want high mTOR, right? And it turns out bodybuilders raise their mTOR uh, intentionally. The problem is that if you want to live to at least 180 like you and me, then you don't want chronically high mTOR because mTOR also is correlated with cancer, right? So it's like, how do I have enough to be robust but not have it around all the time? And 
Well, the way to do that is to spike your mTOR and have it low the rest of the time. When you're fasting, your mTOR is low. The number one spiker of mTOR is sugar and carbs. And the number two is protein, specifically certain types of amino acids in protein. So what that means though, is if you eat fat, it will not change insulin levels at all. And it will not change mTOR levels at all. So there's even one of the, the common fasting apps out there. They, they keep doing these videos like, no, you can't have fat during a fast. It breaks a fast. No, fat doesn't break a fast, guys. Like, like it's, it, it's because of mTOR and it's because of insulin. And what you will find, and in Fastest Way, I go through more of the science on it, is that if you're starting intermittent fasting and you're like most human beings on the planet who have never gone 24 hours without food, you feel like you're going to die. I mean, it's, it's like, it's bad. And in fact, the first time I fasted, I hired a shaman to drop me in a cave for four days with no food and no people. Cause I knew I'd be hypoglybitchy. Like that's how scared most people are of fasting. This was a long time ago, but that's in the book. So what if you put some butter and some MCT oil in your coffee? And at this point you say, that doesn't work. Dude, like millions of pounds lost. Like this has been a, a global phenomenon. You can go to small towns in India where they put butter and MCT oil and coffee and call it bulletproof, right? So that works. Uh, and it is a knockoff of Tibetan yak butter tea, which has been around for like 5,000 years. So they'll do that. And I think it's okay to do that during a fast because it turns off hunger because, uh, well, there's actually a variety of mechanisms for it, but you do that. And then maybe that's your first fast. And maybe after a year of doing that, like, you know, today I just had some black coffee or some tea, whatever I wanted to drink, but it doesn't have to be only water. I think water only fasting is probably a medical supervised long-term thing. If you're looking for some certain types of gut resets, the rest of us have some already and just get your fast done. And you know, anywhere from a half a teaspoon up to a tablespoon or two is just going to make you feel like yourself while you're fasting. So you can be a parent, have a job and, you know, not be a health influencer, 22 year old who's never been obese telling people you have to have only water. Yeah. Good luck guys. Now we have to clarify this though, because I, I know people out there going like, Oh, I can have fat during my, my fast. And they're going to go out and pick up some of this processed keto food. And thank uh, you. Yeah, it's not going to work because there's other things. <laughs> yeah, it, it has to be only fat and polyphenols if you want to. In other words, like you can have some tea or some coffee. But if it's got any protein or any carbs in it, it will break your fast. Yeah. And I'm actually being a little bit extreme there. There's one kind of carb you could have during a fast that's also in fast this way. And it's prebiotic soluble fiber that can't be digested because that is highly satiating. And I don't, you won't be hungry if you put that in there. And so in fact, in my coffee, um, if I want to do a fast, I'll put coffee and it ha coffee has its own benefits for hunger suppression. Um, and it doubles ketone production and you want ketones to go up when you fast because ketones are good for you and they're hunger suppressant. So you could do the black coffee and I wanted more, add a little bit of butter. It doesn't have to be a lot, just a little bit. So MCT, and then you can add the soluble fiber, the prebiotic fiber. And what the fiber does when you eat it, all of those turn off hunger, which is great. That's what you wanted during a fast was to not like think about food all the time. You wanted to just live your life. But then magically the fiber gets into the gut and then bacteria there will turn the fiber into short chain fatty acids, primarily butyrate. And funny enough, butyrate is a pro-ketogenic fat. So soluble fiber turns into fat before it gets absorbed in your body. So you're not raising insulin, you're not raising mTOR. So there is nothing wrong with avoiding suffering and getting benefits. And, and there's so much of this like, you know what? 
Uh, I just, I love self-flagellation and hair shirts. And these are, you know, 14th century monks would do this. They'd wear shirts made out of human hair, so they were extra itchy, and then they'd whip themselves in the back because suffering is good for you. I just believe that most humans have a life to live, and it's hard enough to deal with all the stuff in life right now. You don't need to add to your suffering during an intermittent fast. You want to build your resilience so that intermittent fast is not suffering, and it's okay to use tools to get there. It's also okay to put on a warm coat when it's cold outside, right? You might want to use a cold shower in the morning, but you don't have to freeze your butt off all day long. It's not even good for you. So this is about being kind to yourself, doing a practice that's sustainable for decades that makes you live longer and feel better without putting all of your energy into doing the practice. I uh, I used to do dogmatic intermittent fasting. And what I found is that there were some mornings I would wake up and I was voraciously hungry. And then other mornings, I just never had an appetite until like one or two in the afternoon. Um, and what I realized is I was ignoring my, my body's signals. And mm -hmm. you know, I mean, first you have to know that your signals are correct. Uh, but yeah. I've gotten to the point where I just, I just listen to my body and I say, okay, am I hungry? then I eat. And so I don't follow any, any timeline of, Oh, this is breakfast. This is lunch. This is dinner. I have to fast for 12 hours. Um, but when I look at my eating patterns, I mean, I generally eat one to two meals a day and I don't snack, but I just, I just eat when I'm hungry, which has uh, been a game changer for me. I mean, it, it's really made a huge difference. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? You are doing it exactly right. And, and that's the really the, the underlying purpose of the title of the book is like fast this way. <laughs> and it's mm -hmm. what your body wants. But what you've achieved and what some of your listeners have achieved is understanding that fine line between hunger and a craving. And I did not even know there was a difference when I started on this path. And I just always had cravings. I remember I ended a meeting once. Um, this is at the company that held Google's first servers when Google's just like two guys and two computers. And I had eight people in the meeting. And I, I just said, guys, it's 1145. Uh, and lunch is like in 15 minutes. But if I don't have lunch right now, I am going to kill one of you and eat one of you. So we're ending our meeting now. If you, you want to continue, I'll be in the cafeteria. And then I went down and I said, look, you know, <laughs> give me the double chicken breast and some veggies, right? And not no fat and, you know, just protein. And um, then, of course, at two o'clock, I wanted my snack and, you know, the, the same old eating every two hours and, and just really, really bad advice. Mm -hmm. That was a craving. That was, I cannot function. I'm crashing. And if you get that after you eat, it's your fault. It's what you ate in the meal before. So a portion of, of Fast This Way is all about, here's the foods most likely to cause cravings in you. And when you eliminate most of those, you go, oh, hunger's a gentle feeling. Like, you know, I probably ought to eat sometime in the next, in the next you know, couple hours. If I don't, I'll be fine. But, you know, it, it, now's the time, right? It, it's a gentle thing. And a craving is... Tacos. Oh my God. Tacos. What am I going to have for lunch? Like, oh man, a pizza would be really good. Hmm. And you get this constant voice around your head about food, food, food. And then you start feeling it in your gut. It's like this gnawing feeling and you're, you're like, mm, I can barely hold myself back. And now I'm going to get a little bit dark on you. I saw 
um, a video of, of something. It was, I think it was Korea. Maybe it was Japan. I, I don't remember. It was a language that isn't native to me. And it was about a very obese person who was stuck in an elevator for three days. And, well, he ate another person. No. That's dark. <laughs> Just in three days, right? Oh, and, my God. Right. But that's cravings. You, you have to or you will die. That's what your body is telling. It's not true. But it feels true because your body told you it was true. And I just felt compassion for the guy. I was like, oh, my God. Like, like that person's metabolism is broken. And God knows what other trauma and stuff is going on there. But we don't want to feel like we're going to die if we don't eat. That is always a craving. Because the reality is that you can go for at least 60 days without eating and you won't die. And I, I had this conversation with my son when he was maybe six or seven he was trying to argue about eating something, some broccoli or whatever was on his plate. Okay, my kids eat grass-fed meat. I live on an organic, regenerative farm where we raise our own animals and we have the best food you could possibly have on the planet because like, we make it ourselves, right? So he's complaining about something or another. And I looked at him and I said, that's amazing. I'm so proud of you. And he goes, what? And I said, you've decided to join me in an intermittent fast. You won't die if you don't eat for two whole months. So we can fast as long as you want. Let's do it. We'll both put our food in the fridge and let's go play. And he just looked at me like, and he eats his broccoli. And like, we've never had that conversation again. But it's the knowledge that you won't die for months without food. Why are you thinking about pizza right now for lunch? If so, something is wrong in your biology. It's not wrong with you morally. It's not wrong in your brain. It's that your body is sending you that signal, right? Isn't that kind of interesting? That's what I wanted people to get out of the book. And I've taught now about 75,000 people how to fast. Basically, it's the, the guts of the book uh, for free. You can go to fastthisway.com and, and I'll just teach you how to do the fasting. Um, and it's, uh, it's something that is life-changing. And I, I have heard so many people say, I didn't think I could go 24 hours without food, but I wasn't even hungry. And it's the, but I wasn't even hungry. That's the win. You don't have to suffer to do it. And it is such a uh, insanely high return on investment longevity strategy. It might be the highest one because when you make an investment in something, it usually costs you money. But this is like you walk into the bank and like, oh, hey, welcome. Here's five bucks. And you're like, I'm not even a customer. They're like, yeah, yeah, I know. And then you go in further like, oh, yeah, um, we're going to give you interest on that $5 too. Like, what? So intermittent fasting you didn't spend any energy or time on making breakfast and you didn't spend any money on breakfast. So you got a return right away, but then you got more energy that morning than if you had eaten breakfast, you actually feel better and your brain works better. So then you're going, wait, I saved money and time. And then I got more energy right now. And then over time, the interest payment comes in because you didn't get diabetes because you didn't get Alzheimer's disease because you didn't get cancer because you live longer but you didn't have to do anything that cost you money. You just got paid up front and you got paid over time. Like that's why it was worth writing a book about. Um, as far as timing on mm -hmm. the intermittent fasting, the, um, you know, I, I talked to you about my, the habits that I'd learned and, uh, or I was dogmatic about, and then I kind of converted into feeling into it. I read a study, I think it was about two or three years ago, um, about 
fasting periods. You know, they were trying to say what was the best. You know, is it the twelve-hour fast during the day? Is it the eighteen-hour fast overnight? And the conclusion of the researchers was that um, irregular fasting was giving the best results for people because they found that the people who were fasting routinely at a, at a normal schedule, the body tended to adapt to to that pattern. And they were losing the benefits of it. But when they would do like they do a 24 hour fast one day and then the next day they'd do intermittent and the next day they would do, um, you, know, you know, like eat breakfast and dinner and no lunch. Uh, but throwing it around kept the body from kind of adapting to a specific pattern. So it kept the benefits a little bit stronger. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I think there's a downside to that, but the the thinking behind the research is valid if you do it the same way every day your body will adapt and that's why in fast this way guys eat breakfast with carbs on saturday just like on weekends take a day off do not do the same program every day for that exact reason so you can break an adaptation pattern by once or twice a week having some breakfast so i'm usually usually on saturday mornings i'll have some kind of white rice i like japanese mochi which is like a baked white rice thing. So I'll have that and some bacon from our farm and whatever else and some coffee and I'll have that for breakfast and maybe a steak. And I'm completely happy with that. And so I eat three meals that day on purpose because I don't want to be always used to, to fasting. But I have spent a huge amount of time looking at circadian biology and sleep. And one of the chapters in Fastest Way, I talk about how to control your circadian rhythm. And fasting is a part of it, but fasting is the second strongest signal for circadian timing. The first signal is light. And within light, there's five components of light that control what light does to your circadian timing. So what you do is you go back two billion years in evolutionary time when we were little mitochondrial bacteria floating around in the ocean. And when the sun was directly overhead and we had the most intense light, UV, infrared, and the full spectrum of light, including blue and all the other colors, um, that was funny enough right around between noon and two when there was the most algae that was a food source present because algae was using the light to turn into little things that were food for us. So what that means is all these you know, billions of mitochondria that are in your body are each independently seeking to understand what time it is so they can synchronize with all the other things in there, much like all the computers on the internet know what time it is so they can do stuff together. There's whole timing clocks online that allow this to happen. So for your body to set that clock, it says, huh, when is there the brightest overhead light? And when is there the most caloric availability? And when I say caloric, as measured by insulin response, it's not just calories because we already talked about how fat doesn't do the same thing. So it isn't just calories, but it's um, it's certainly a, a raise in blood sugar. And when that happens, that's the middle of the day. So your ideal eating time is actually from noon to 2 p.m. And if you were to get the bulk of your calories then, outdoors in sunlight, <laughs> you'd probably have the best outcome you could do. And when people choose to have an earlier dinner, like stop eating after five or six, and certainly stop eating after the sun goes down, magic happens. And you get much better results from intermittent fasting from having an earlier dinner and a later breakfast. So basically making the peak of your 
food during the day closer to the middle of the day reaps additional benefits. And that's why I wouldn't want to see people doing what the study says. Oh, I'll just have my food at eight o'clock tonight and then tomorrow I'll have it at 6 a.m. Because the timing system in your body is looking for the peak of food to be around the middle of the day. That's not to say that you know you can't some, sometimes have a ton of protein in the morning because you just worked out and you wanted to do that. And then I would just say, have it when the sun is up, no matter what. Uh, but do your best to, on most days, put it in the middle of the day because your sleep quality will actually demonstrate how important that was for you. And, you know, that's one thing that we call, uh, with our clients, we call that becoming, um, it's getting away from emotional eating to strategic eating, um, where that. you actually do it from a... Uh, an outcome standpoint. And, and when I see people switch from that emotional eating to strategic, it makes a huge difference for them. It, uh, it's oh, literally life-changing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you mentioned, um, you mentioned about calorie restriction and longevity and, you know, obviously for you and I, this is a very passionate subject. Um, you know, we're in a very small WhatsApp group that shares everything new and exciting in the, in the longevity world, which I'm very group. grateful for. Yeah. Um, but, um, there was an article that was mind blowing to me. It came out, um, a couple months ago and they were talking about the longevity benefits of calorie restriction and was it actually the calorie restriction that was creating the benefit? Yes. And uh, do you, are you familiar with this, with the hamsters? Absolutely. The I've been saying this forever. It, it's yeah. methionine restriction, right? Well, no, no, this one went beyond that. This one looked oh. at temperature. Oh, oh, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Where they found that, um, you know, when, when metabolism went up uh, or when metabolism went down, there, there were the benefits there. And that's what they were associating with the calorie restriction. But then they did a study where they, they heated the rats up. So their metabolism went up and kept them calorie restricted and they didn't get the benefits. But then mm -hmm. if they heated them up, but then had a fan that blew on them, their metabolism went up, but their body temperatures went down and they actually got the same longevity benefits. So it was an article that said, you know, are we looking at the wrong thing? Are we looking at calorie restriction as the source of the benefits of longevity or is it the, the reduction in body temperature that occurs with it? You know, it's, it, it's such a conundrum. I don't think I know the answer to that, but yeah. I do have a little story uh, about body temperature. Um, in the, the early days of the longevity movement, at least the, the modern longevity movement, given that most traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda and, and Taoism is all also uh, longevity studies. <laughs> so there's yeah. thousands of years of people doing this before us. Um, but, um, We'll say in the, the early and late 90s, um, I was obese, uh, as I mentioned, and I had chronically low body temperature. Instead of 98.6, I was closer to 96.8. I was always cold. And now what I think you'd, you'd infer from that, from looking at that study, is, well, great, you know, you're going to live a long time, right? But what we know is people with low thyroid function do not live longer. They mm -hmm. actually die more because they have metabolic problems. So what these mice are telling us, I think, is that if you have a healthy metabolism and you change the body temperature, something good happens. 
but most people with low body temperature don't have a healthy metabolism. So for me, what I had to do was not just correct the thyroid, the body actually gets stuck at these things. Um, a uh, control systems engineer who passed away many years ago came up with a protocol for resetting body temperature that was extreme, but it's one that I did. And what you did is you took um, relatively high dose T3 for a week, you wore a parka and insulated pants, you drank hot water, you sat in the heater and you literally hyper regulated your temperature. So you always had a temperature of at least 101 uh, well on thyroid hormone um, above your normal dosage of it. Uh, and after that, my body temperature regulated back up to 98.6, even when I went back to normal dosages of thyroid for the amount of um, thyroid Hashimoto's that I had. So I actually think it made a major difference for me, but it's one of those things that I don't think is ever going to reach mainstream medicine. Um, and it feels important for a lot of enzyme activity in the body to have enough temperature because some enzymes, including DNA repair enzymes, have a very narrow range of activity. What I think is more likely going to be the anti-aging strategy is one that's been a core part of biohacking for years and years. That would be temporary cryotherapy like intermittent fasting is well you know it's intermittent and in mice you can put a fan on them you can do whatever you want to do but if you were to say you know be cold sometimes but not all the time and, and we know i think with pretty good assuredness that being chronically cold isn't good for you um any uh, any kind of measure of body temperature heart rate variability all of traditional chinese medicine um they're basically saying you don't want to be cold all the time. So what does that mean? It means that you probably really do want to be cold adapted. You do want to get that cold exposure. Um, when I first started maybe a 15 years ago, really doing cold therapy, I was like, all right, I did my ice bath at you know, 35 degrees and, you know, walk around in shorts, no matter what the Canadian winter here is like, uh, but being chronically cold isn't good for you. And so I stopped doing that. Um, so I, I, I don't know if we're going to find a human analogy to this. It may also be one of those cooling gloves. Uh, in fact, I've got mm -hmm. a cooling and a heating glove over there like the NFL use. You put your hand in a glove that cools the blood, but not the body. Uh, so there, there's like a whole bunch of anti-aging research I think will come out of that study, but I don't know. What are your thoughts on it? I don't know. I mean, I see uh, really good results with people with the uh, cooling pads on the bed. Um, you know, yeah. just do, doing that nightly, I see bio, biometrics that improve dramatically uh, just from their wearables and their uh, and their blood markers. Um, so, you know, I think it's an area that needs to be explored that hasn't been explored very much lately. You're but, you're yeah. right. Um, in fact, the the first um, the first launch, uh, like the very first podcast ever to talk about chili, um, maybe a, a decade ago, was was my podcast, uh, The Human Upgrade. Oh, cool. And I had one of the first prototypes for them, but it was noisy back then. But the newer cooling pads that are available are ridiculously quiet and really effective. And they change temperature with a time of day to actually get more deep and more rim. And so I think the scientists come a long way towards just improving sleep, which in and of itself is longevity enhancing. But your point that it may actually be the temperature that's longevity enhancing and it's it's doing sleep is kind of cool. I, I think I think you're right, actually. Yeah. And Chili's the the pad we go to with our clients. I mean, it's cool. just a great pad. Um, 
but let's talk about longevity a little bit because you know sure. let's face it this is this is what we're all doing i mean why are we intermittent fasting well for health and longevity or or increased health span um so in the longevity world what other um what are your other primaries in uh, in either lifestyle or supplementation or any intervention that you're looking at right now well we already talked a lot about sleep but I aim for an hour and a half of deep sleep and an hour and a half of REM or more every night. And I oftentimes get that in six hours of sleep now, <laughs> six and a half hours. I'll get that mm-hmm. uh, almost always. And if you're used to tracking your sleep, that's better than most even, you know, 20 year olds would get in eight hours of sleep because with all these different things that we're talking about, not eating after the sun goes down, uh, my company uh, called True Dark makes glasses where I've filed patents on them even um, that control all those five variables of light that are provably better than blue blocking glasses. So with all the various stuff I do, it seems to be working. And that's a core part of my anti-aging strategy. Uh, and then um, intermittent fasting for sure. Hormone uh, manipulation is just a, a necessary thing. I aim to have the hormones of a healthy 30-year-old, and I will have those as long as I live. And I'm absolutely fine to be injecting testosterone. I've had low testosterone since I was obese as uh, as a young man. Uh, I'm on thyroid hormone. I think thyroid hormone is an anti-aging hormone. And most people over 50 have just a small amount of thyroid dysfunction. And if they take some thyroid, they actually perform better. Uh, I believe that one or two milligrams of nicotine, pharmaceutical nicotine per day is a really good anti-aging strategy for the brain based on research out of Vanderbilt. Um, I call the guy Dr. Nicotine. Um, In 1986, he published the first paper showing nicotine reverses Alzheimer's disease. Not smoking, which is bad for you, not vaping, which is at least as bad as smoking, but actually just pure nicotine in very, very low doses. That's 5% of one cigarette a day. Uh, And I I really do believe that that is um, not just a nootropic, but that it's an anti-aging substance at those doses. I've been using methylene blue for 20 years. Uh, Regular uh, collagen consumption. I'm the guy who made collagen a billion-dollar industry category, so I do believe in that. I've had collagen every day unless it's a a fasting day for 15 years now. It's a, a fundamental thing. Cyclical ketosis is non-negotiable. I'm not always in ketosis by a long shot. I don't think it's good to always be in ketosis. Um, That's important. Uh, Regular toxin binding with activated charcoal and other things like that is also important. Uh, I've been doing ozone therapy to enhance and restore mitochondria for a long time. Uh, Something called EBO2, where you actually take your blood out, filter it, and put it back in while you ozonate it is something that I also do. I think, are you into that in your practice? Uh, we, we do ozone therapies, uh, okay. and apheresis, apheresis, um, even better. Yeah. So in fact, I should come in and do some apheresis with you. I've been looking for someone who was doing that. I didn't know you did it. We actually are involved in an IRB study where we actually have access to young plasma. So we're doing the apheresis where we'll take off one to two liters of, of the plasma from an individual and we will reinfuse it with the plasma of the company we use uses 18 to 21 year old college athletes that they get the plasma from so wow yeah i think the results are gonna i mean based on what we're seeing from a subjective standpoint we're testing this with uh with the true diagnostics um uh, methylation clocks so okay those are the, the best methylation clocks that's the one that i use as well yeah um 
What I find is uh, that when I have a college student locked up under my bed for their blood, they don't like it. That was a, <laughs> Uh, there was a study though. The first company doing um, uh, young uh, plasma couldn't didn't have any studies on it, and it, it mm-hmm. seems like just using um, any plasma replacement, you just get rid of your plasma and all the junk in it, seems to have really profound anti aging effects. So I don't know if it's the young plasma versus clean plasma, because the the two compounds that are probably present in young plasma um, that matter are um, GHK which is copper tripeptide, uh, and we know those levels are higher, but you can just inject copper tripeptide intravenously with an insulin syringe and just get that one done mm-hmm. or put it in an IV. It's not a big deal. Um, and there's another compound, some other peptide, probably TB500, um, mm-hmm. uh, like basically the thymic fractions would be present in plasma. Other than that, though, you might just get clean plasma uh, and replace it uh, with albumin. And, uh, and a couple of peptides and get the same results without having to have the college student. Um, well, yeah, I mean, the, the yeah. preliminary studies so far have shown that just the apheresis alone, when you're replacing it with albumin and, uh, and saline, um, is giving age reversal benefits from the methylation clocks as well. Uh, not quite as strong as when we use young uh, FFP, but um, they also found, I read this one study where they were just infusing a bag of albumin alone and doing nothing else. And they were getting reversal of methylation ages. So, uh, you know, I think it all goes along with the Convoy's research that they've dedicated the last 12, 15 years to in finding what these things are that actually reverse age the, the older, um, older phenotypes. I think surprisingly, um, Bruce Lipton's research will come up here. Uh, Bruce Lipton is probably the guy who most popularized the idea of epigenetics before anyone else. Mm-hmm. And he became, uh, he's a friend, um, he became kind of a, a more of a spiritual guy, to be perfectly honest. He wrote a book called The Biology of Belief um, that a lot of people meditate have probably read. And uh, when I interviewed him on my show, we talked about this. He's a cell biologist from the 60s. He's one of the first guys to clone cells. Uh, so this, this is not like, you know, I was a preacher who was looking for a, um, you know, looking for an angle kind of guy at all. He, he's, he's like, I kept looking at this and it, it's like the medium of cell culture is what defines what the cells do. So we have to look at the medium of our bodies, which is the environment around you. In fact, the definition of biohacking, when I wrote it, it's the art and science of changing the environment around you and inside of you so that you have control of your own biology. That's epigenetics. Let's just be really straightforward. It's a major component of longevity. It's not the only component of it, um, but it's part of it. So when you take cells, I think Bruce talked about this on the show. Um, there's a researcher there who had uh, cells in a culture and he just changed the culture medium every day. And the cells lived you know, 10 times longer than they were supposed to live until the day, you know, his uh, interns forgot to change the medium and <laughs> they died, right? So there's something about having clean plasma, which is basically the medium for your blood cells um, that I think is important. And if you look at um, unusual guys like Thomas Cowan, who talk about cytoplasm and water and the structure of water in collagen within cells and how possibly even the cell, the, the calcium potassium, or sorry, the sodium potassium pump we talk about um, in cells, 
it may not actually be a pump at all. It may be a gradient caused by healthy collagen structures, which are caused by water. There's a lot going on in cell biology that I don't think we know, we know about, but I do know that cerebral spinal fluid and blood plasma, it's more than just inert liquid and there's something going on there. I think we're going to figure out what it is. Yeah. Well, one thing uh, to mention too, that, um, that a lot of people don't mention about longevity is the community social aspect of life. Um, uh, Mario Martinez is a good friend of ours and he did a lot of the research on the blue zones. And um, I think there was another paper I read not too long ago that talked about how uh, psychosocial factors could be more predictive than most biomarkers for longevity. And these people that were having exceptional longevity just had such community connection, such love. And, you know, that's, uh, that's one thing that we work with, with our clients. I mean, our quality of life is our most important metric. And, you know, it doesn't matter if, you know, you get all their labs look good and their quality of life doesn't improve or they they go down in quality of life. You know, the whole goal is to improve quality of life. And I don't know the, the, the way to live longest is clearly to cover your face and stay six feet away from everyone. <laughs> yeah, and for sure. That's, that's just, yeah. you know, from a longevity perspective. <laughs> so. That's, that's a government mandate now. So, uh, they're, they're helping people to live longer. Um, it's, <laughs> It's totally true. A community is terribly important. And I, I, I really, I struggle with that. And I actually don't struggle with many things. I don't even like the word struggle because that, that just means that you're yourself, um, you're, you're making yourself increase your struggling versus just working mm -hmm. on something. Right. Um, but I live on an organic farm on an island. Right. There isn't a lot of community around here. No. Uh, so what I do is I get on airplanes and then I go to places where I usually it's conferences where most of my close friends are anyway. And then we get to like learn and do fun stuff and go out to dinner and all that. Uh, but on a day to day basis, I don't get as much of that. And during the pandemic, I didn't get much of that at all. And yeah, I don't think that was good for uh, for humanity in general, certainly not good for me. Uh, so what's your advice for people then um, who you have it's, those clients coming I mean, saying, you know, I prescribe yeah, I was, community. What does that look like? <laughs> well, and, and it is hard because most of my clients are like, you know, they're, they're kind of wealthy people that tend to isolate themselves uh, from those community groups. And, you know, for me, I was, my wife and I, we were 10 years in isolation just because we didn't, we didn't like the routine socialization of, you know, let's go out and have dinner and talk about you know, politics and yeah, sports and let's complain and get drunk. Like, yeah, yeah. Gee, let's not. Right. I'm but, with you there. But then we moved to Austin and we've got a, just a wonderful community of people that we get together several times a week in just each other's homes or somewhere where we just sit around. I mean, we have people like Jamie wheel and uh, Aubrey Marcus and, and just real deep thinkers that can have meaningful conversations. And that has been the biggest boost for me in in really quality of life is actually starting to do that and i've been doing it for about two years and i just absolutely love it and i think it's the way people should live you know i'm i am strongly considering a move to austin myself i just oh, you should you, know, you, you got to be around enough people that you have regular uh, interactions and, and the more weird you are, uh, the bigger the community needs to be. Otherwise, you won't be around <laughs> yeah. your people. And unfortunately for both of us, because we qualify to be in the weird uh, WhatsApp group for anti-aging experts, is 
Uh, I hate to tell you, you and I are both highly weird, which is good. It means we're yeah, not average. I accept that. <laughs> <laughs> but it does mean you got to find a way to build your community. So for everyone listening to this, if you feel like you're the only one like you, I promise you that you're probably not as weird as either one of us. But you have to be around and you have to consciously go out and, and build that community. And if you don't, I don't care how much testosterone or ashitaba or whatever else you're taking, you're probably not going to live a long time. That's what it comes That's to. right. Well, and speaking of mingling at conferences, we've got a conference coming up, don't we? That is right. The Biohacking Conference. Um, it's mm -hmm. entering its 10th year. It's September 15th to 17th in Beverly Hills, biohackingconference.com. Um, this started out actually, uh, like I said, 10 years ago, it was in San Francisco at a bar. And funny enough, one of the guys you just mentioned, Aubrey Marcus was there uh, and uh, started talking about biohacking after that. And uh, when you, uh, you fast forward now, I built the conference because I wanted a community of people who were interested in it's like, how do I change my biology so like I can improve? Um, but I, I don't want to suffer to do it. I, I want the results. And I don't want to do the stuff that's supposed to work. Like, let's all go run a marathon. Like, how about let's not? The first guy who did that died. And people who run marathons don't have good inflammation panels, right? So let's do something that is more time efficient that gives us like that extra resilience. So I built a community consciously. And now there's, oh, about 3,000 people who show up to the conferences. So come to uh, L.A., and spend three days. I'll feed you the best food ever at a conference. This is the hotel where they host the Golden Globes. It's beautiful. And you get to meet people who are into this stuff. So you don't feel like you're weird. You're going, I just found my community. And you get to play with all the tech of biohacking. You get to meet experts. And of course, you're there, right? Yeah, I, uh, I have to say he's Dave's not blowing smoke on this. It's a yeah. it's an amazing conference. Um, I had the, the honor of being a speaker there last year, the first one out of COVID um, at that conference. And it was so good to be back with that community and the top-notch speakers that were presenting stuff. I mean, it's rare that I go to conferences that I hear things that I didn't know before. And this is one where I have to start actually doing my research after I leave um, just to keep up with stuff. And, you know, the, the vendors there, I mean, I learned, as much from vendors as I learned from speakers because they have all the new and exciting biohacking tools and get to play with them and uh, decide what you want to add to your regimen for sure. I mean, I, I curate the vendors pretty well. I, I don't have a chance to try everything from every vendor because that's a whole lot of products. But uh, what I do is I look for evidence that there's efficacy uh, before we let someone in. And I turn away any of the multi-level marketing and like, there's some other just kind of weird stuff out there. And I do my best to to turn away the knockoff vendors. So if there's someone who created a new tech and someone else came along and said, I'm just doing the same thing, um, <laughs> but I, I did a worse job of it and made it cheaper because I believe in what the big food industry is doing. I'm like, well, how about we just go with the original here? Uh, and there's times when someone comes along and says, I innovated based on that idea and mine is actually better. It's like, come on in. So I'm looking to foster respect amongst the vendors um, and high integrity, and that does matter a lot. And you might have some, I don't know how it works. We don't know the mechanism of action yet, but if you have evidence it works, that's where biohacking lives, mm -hmm. is we measured the data, we found that it works. And then you get the skeptics who go, if I don't know the mechanism of action, I can't use it because it might not work. <laughs> I'm like, okay, let me help you out here. Here's your mechanism, leprechauns. 
right? And, well, okay, like most of the things we believed about science 100 years ago were proven to be false when we found better ones. So if you need a story to feel safe doing something that provably works, I just gave you a story. So now how about you, STFU, and just do what works and we'll figure out the mechanisms as we're benefiting. And, and that's the difference between academic science versus, um, well, let's look at results. And here's an example for you, Dan. Um, in Superhuman, this is my anti-aging book that came out, I think, four or five years ago um, and still stands the test of time, I would say, today. I wrote about taking Ashitaba, which is a Japanese uh, anti-aging for many years um, herb, and it doesn't even taste very good. And I said, well, here's all the reasons for it. Here's the studies. So this is something that we ought to do, but we don't really know the mechanism of action, although we, we have some ideas. And um, just in late 2019, a paper came out um, on Ashitaba, looking at somewhere around a 20%, maybe slightly more than 20% lifespan extension in mice from uh, chalcone, which is one of the flavonoids that's in Ashitaba. So should we have waited until we knew the name of the flavonoid or should we have just taken our Ashitaba for the past five <laughs> years? the biohackers take the Ashitaba and say, we can course correct later. And everyone else says, I need to wait for more studies. And meanwhile, they die waiting for more studies. And I just don't want to be one of those. I, I always tell my, my clients or the prospective clients when I'm on discovery calls, I said, you know, I work with people that want to be on that cutting edge that aren't going to sit around and say, I'm waiting for the longitudinal studies to, to come out. Because in longevity, if you're waiting, you will most definitely be dead. There's a name for those people. It's called coward. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. That's what it is. And there's a reason that my new coffee is called danger coffee. Because look, when you have enough energy, you might do something like decide to try something that's probably going to work. You might, who knows what you might do, but you would at least have the power to do something. And the weak people are the ones who aren't powerful enough to be dangerous. So I, I, I'm looking to create a world full of people who are running at full power because people are running at full power are not only dangerous because they can do the right thing when they want to, but they're also peaceful because we're wired to help each other when our health is there. And when we don't have our health, we're wired to punch each other. And like, that's not a good situation. So I want <laughs> abundantly healthy, powerful people who might be dangerous, who don't have a reason to be dangerous around me. Uh, that's, that's behind all the work that I do is like, let's, let's build that kind of human. Yeah, for sure. More, more life in the years. Yeah. I like well, that. Dave, it has been a pleasure as usual. I, I always enjoy the time I get to spend with you. And this was a nice extended period that we could uh, have some open discussions. So uh, thank you for taking time to, to be on the podcast today. Thanks a lot, Daniel. And I look forward to hanging out with you at the biohacking conference guys, biohackingconference.com. And maybe I'll see you in Austin. All right. Sounds great. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 
Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.